The good news is that there is a choice. There is some empowering underlying message in there, which is we can make different choices. And we know from research, decades and decades of research, that the vegans and the vegetarians tend to have lower blood pressure and are at lower risk for hypertension. Well, hello there, and welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen this week, or a view, or a download, wherever it is in the world that you are. We appreciate the fact that you are here. High blood pressure. You know, a high amount of us have it. According to the CDC, 45% of adults in the U.S. fall into that category. Just a few years ago, in 2017, 1,300 Americans with high blood pressure died every single day. And you do the math, you break that down a little bit, that's 54 people every hour and 472,000 that year. It's a major contributing factor in both heart disease and strokes, two of the leading causes of death. And now it is the leading underlying condition with COVID-19. Studies from around the world have shown this connection, and statistics published by the state of New York show that more than half of everyone who has died there from COVID-19 had high blood pressure. And down in Louisiana, that rate jumps all the way to 6 out of 10. And if you're thinking, yeah, but none of this applies to me. I'm healthy. I eat a plant-based diet. Well, think again. Because one way or another, we are all affected by it. Because the toll that hypertension takes extends beyond the body and into all of our wallets. It costs about $131 billion to treat it every single year. And that is driving premiums up across the board. So today, on this very show, we're going to see what we can do to help everyone out. We want to bring that blood pressure down, get it in the normal range. We want to help people live longer, and we want people to live healthier. So to accomplish that, dietitian Susan Levin will be joining us momentarily to take a deeper look at what causes high blood pressure, what we can do to fix it, and the foods we should be avoiding, and the foods we should be eating, right? Because it's the solutions that we're after. And plus, Dr. Jim Loomis from the movie The Game Changers will be here to share a banging recipe for beet hummus. And he's also going to answer your questions, including whether salt can play a role in a healthy diet. Now, that's a pretty interesting follow-up to the conversation we're about to have with Susan. Plus, Dr. Loomis is also going to be answering a question from Monica who wants to know whether it's possible to undo all of the damage that a poor diet does to the body before someone changes over to a plant-based diet. So can you truly unring that bell? We're going to find out. I'm sure that a lot of ears are going to be perking up for that one. So are you ready 
Let's kick things off right now with Susan Levin. Hypertension, the causes, the solutions, food yays and food nays. As we continue here on the Exam Room Podcast brought to you by the Physicians Committee, we're going to take a look at one of the leading comorbidities with the COVID-19 crisis, and that is high blood pressure. It affects so many people beyond COVID-19, but we really want to narrow that down today. And so to help us do that, we are joined by dietitian Susan Levin from the Barnard Medical Center. Susan, thanks for joining us. Yes, thanks for having me. Let's start by defining what high blood pressure is, because so many of us are still accustomed to the 120 over 80 levels. What is the current measurement for high blood pressure? Well, that is is still the biomarker that they use for high blood pressure, 120 over 80. You want it to be below that. Um, And then there are tiers to your risk beyond that. Um, But it... uh, To get technical, there's two numbers. There's systolic blood pressure, which is the number on top, and diastolic blood pressure, which is the number on bottom. So you probably hear those numbers, uh, those words thrown around a little bit. And the top number is the pressure in the arteries with every heartbeat, and the bottom number is the pressure in the arteries between heartbeats, to to put it simply. But why why it matters is that they're both related to the force and the rate at which Um, the heartbeat functions. And then it also relates to the diameter of the arteries and the flexibility of the arteries as well. And we all know how important that is and how risky that can be when you start to build up uh, plaque in your arteries and you lose, you lose that flexibility and you lose, you literally lose that diameter. Um, So blood pressure will be affected by that as well. Well, before we talk about foods that can both raise and lower blood pressure, let's talk about the COVID-19 time because we've seen these stats and I know New York State uh, is just one of many that keep tabs on on the people who are unfortunately passing from the coronavirus. And you look at that, more than half of these guys have high blood pressure. We're, We're seeing a lot of that. Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, high blood pressure half of all adults in the U.S. have high blood pressure to begin with. So even before COVID, it was a huge problem um, and, and it's becoming a global problem. And then pile on top of that, this coronavirus. And you're right, in, in New York specifically, in the epicenter, what is considered the epicenter of this disease for, for those of us in the States, more than half of the people who have died from COVID had diagnosed hypertension. And then you can even look at other parts of the country and find places like Louisiana, which was hit pretty hard as well, even higher, 66% of those who died had high blood pressure. That was a number taken back um, in April, but I'm I'm sure it's very similar as well. And a lot of this comes from African-Americans who are disproportionately dying from COVID um, and and are at greater risk for hypertension. So, you know, the two together pilot again, kind of piling on each other and making everything much worse and, and much worse among certain populations. And, you know, compared to white Americans, and if you if you pair them up by age, black Americans are 50% more likely to have high blood pressure. So we know that there's an issue with um, disproportionate healthcare and, and, and disproportionate disease distribution among races. Um, so, so it's a big problem. And 
when you just step back and look at what the World Health Organization has to say globally, that the hypertension um, are among the highest risk groups, obviously, from what we've said, uh, for more serious cases of COVID and as well as death from, you know, dying from COVID. So they, they put a number on that just to give you a little perspective. If you have hypertension, your death rate from COVID is 8.4%. What does that mean? Well, if you hadn't had an underlying condition, your death rate for COVID is less than 1%. So that's quite quite a, a huge gap and, and a huge risk factor is hypertension, obviously. Right. And then you, again, pulling up the, the New York statistics, I have these in front of me right now. 90% of everyone who died from COVID-19 in New York had at least one of these comorbidities. Of course, again, hypertension being at the top of the list. Now, you mentioned African-Americans and you mentioned Louisiana specifically. Beginning with Louisiana, I you know, you think about that traditional Southern Louisiana diet, and that is very high in sodium, if I'm not mistaken. I know conversations that I've had with uh, Josh Lajani, phenomenal weight Mm -hmm. loss story Mm -hmm. down in the heart of Louisiana, Mm -hmm. a Cajun through and through this gentleman. So you talk about the foods that he used to eat and how heavy he used to be. If that truly is the traditional diet down there, it really is kind of no surprise then that we're seeing so many people with hypertension in these COVID mortalities. Right. Like it is, it it has earned its name down there as the, whatever, the diabetes belt, the the heart attack belt. I mean, and I'm from Alabama. I I, I know of what I speak um, in terms of the food offered. And, you know, the good news, I guess there's bad news and good news in that. And the, the good news is that there is a choice. You know, I, I understand cultural Cultural surroundings are huge. Your environment is huge, but there is some empowering underlying message in there, which is we can make different choices. And we know from research, decades and decades of research, that people who steer away from those types of diets, the high sodium, meat-based diets, do better. And we you know, we can get right down into the boring studies, right? The vegans and the vegetarians tend to have lower blood pressure and are at lower risk for hypertension than people who consume um, animal products. And I actually, a few years ago, co-authored a meta-analysis on this very topic and looking at blood pressure and the diets that relate to blood pressure. And those who cut out meat, so the vegetarians, had significantly less blood pressure than people who had what is, was called an omni- uh, is called an omnivorous diet. And then people who cut out all animal products had even lower blood pressure. It's not news. Like we've known this. And in fact, the therapeutic diet for blood pressure for years has been the DASH diet, the dietary approach to stop hypertension, DASH. Um, Every hospital knows it and, and will prescribe it to people with hypertension. And it is literally based on the fact that observational studies, people who don't eat meat, have lower blood pressure. Okay. So they created the DASH diet, which sort of tiptoed around that. They weren't ready. You know, everyone fears saying you need to go vegetarian, you need to go vegan. I don't know why, but they do. So they just kind of made a moderate, moderate, moderation version of vegetarian and called it DASH. But the fact remains that the foundation of any diet that is to help blood pressure 
removes animal products. And the more you do it, the better your blood pressure is. Do we know what specifically it is about the animal products that raises blood pressure? Well, we could certainly guess. One, animal products are very high in saturated fat, right? So dairy products being the number one source of saturated fat in our diets and and, and any animal. Meat is, of course, going to have a lot of saturated fat as well. So just think about that in terms of blood pressure in the viscosity of your blood and how much harder it is to pump you know, oil through a, through a pipe than it is water. And the more viscous your blood, the more fat in your blood, much higher your blood pressure just to get that oil through, through the pipes, right? So that's probably one good obvious, obvious reason. The others are include things like um, plant, plants are just lower in sodium. So you're not going to have a lot of salt added or sodium added. You have traces amounts of sodium from the earth, but nothing like a processed food that you see in things like cheese or meat products, especially processed meat products. So you are just naturally consuming less sodium, which we know is important. Uh, weight loss, people who are, uh, avoid animal products tend to weight less and that reduces blood pressure. Um, potassium intake. So it's not just what's going away, it's what's coming in. So you're eating more potassium and potassium, which is an electrolyte, and it reduces blood pressure, reduces stroke risk. We've known this for years, and we've always told people with high blood pressure or higher risk for heart disease, get more potassium in your diet. That comes naturally with a lot of plants in your diet. Um, folate, another, you know, from the word foliage, uh, or vice versa, I don't know which came first, but um, that helps with blood pressure as well. So making sure you're getting lots of leafy greens, nitric rich, uh, nitrate rich vegetables. So that it, another nutrient that helps with blood pressure, um, often found mostly in leafy greens um, and some other vegetables as well, rhubarb, uh, cilantro. So these kinds of um, nutrients that are so prevalent in plants you don't even have to think about it. You're just going to get them in your diet. Um, so probably, I mean, it's synergistic, right? It's always synergistic. It's like, it's hard to pinpoint. So, um, and someone will try to pinpoint it to one thing so they can put it in a pill and sell it to you. But the truth is it's the whole diet. It's the composition of the whole diet. What's not there, what is there that is going to help reduce blood pressure. All right. Well, let me try to pinpoint this too, because I, I always ask these kinds of questions because I'm picturing it from the point of view of someone who wants to have a conversation with their friend or their family member who is not eating a plant-based diet. Do we know whether one type of meat is more likely to raise blood pressure than another? Is it pork because of high sodium? Is it red meat? Is it chicken? What do mm -hmm. we know? Well, I think it's probably anything that's going to be processed more is going to have more sodium because sodium is a preservative. Um, it's going to keep it shelf stable. So sure, things like um, ham, bacon, sausage, right? So now I'm just describing the diet from, from Louisiana and Alabama. There's just, there's just a lot of these kind of products traditionally in, in our foods, um, take a great dish like red beans and rice, which I, I grew up on that, but it always had ham or sausage or something else in there. Um, those very salty, salty, salty um, products are certainly going to pack a lot more punch and risk into your diet. And that, you know, reminds me of when I was still overweight and very much addicted to fast food. The fact that 
the doctor put me on high blood pressure medication when I was still in high school. Mm -hmm. I think that that speaks volumes because I was primarily eating not a plant-based diet, but a primarily drive-through diet. And that was uh, very troublesome. I remember going in and so often my blood pressure was in the ballpark of 180 or 190 over 90 or 100. So, you know, it was, it was very high at such a young age. And as I got heavier, it just kept climbing higher and higher and higher. So as a dietitian, if somebody comes to you right now at the Barnard Medical Center via telehealth, and they say, hey, you know, I'm overweight, my blood pressure is out of control. That's something that you can help really walk them through and get them back on, a, on the right path, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, you said, it's, 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 it, it, the risk is everywhere. And that's why so many of us have high blood pressure. And, you know, diet is huge. There's a stress component here too, no way, um, which to I that. don't want to you know, I don't want to dismiss that. Right. So, um, and the other thing about high blood pressure, a couple other things, one is you don't always know you have it like, cause the, the, the signs, the telltale signs are often dis, dismissible. If that's a word. Um, it's not like having necessarily like having, you, you don't know, you know, when you're overweight, you get on the scale. Right. But with blood pressure, the signs are very subtle oftentimes. So you do need to monitor it, if you, even if you think you're a little bit at risk, like whether that's a home um, blood pressure monitor or making sure you're doing your annual visits and checking your blood pressure, because we, you may not know that you have high blood pressure. The second thing is, and to your point, when you mentioned you were prescribed medications in high school, those medications come with some pretty risky side effects. And one of those side effects may be um, higher blood glucose levels. And now you're, you're throwing yourself into the category of being at higher risk for diabetes. You know, so you just medications come, look, if you have high blood pressure and your physician says go on medication, absolutely. I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying there may be, um, a better alternative eventually or in conjunction with, and that is getting it under, under control with diet and, you know, possibly stress management, but certainly those dietary choices are huge. I remember specifically at first being put on beta blockers and them turning to that is, would that have opened the door for a higher glucose? Do you know? Um, with that specific drug, I'm not sure, but um, I, I, I do know now in modern time, COVID times, um, these drugs are also possibly implicated in why people who who have hypertension are at higher risk for worsening outcomes or death. It could be the medications are wrong. They don't quite know. Uh, but again, that's another reason to try to get this under control through lifestyle choices, um, because there may be even other risks that we are not even yet aware of with the medications. And the bottom line, as I see it, is this. You're talking about high blood pressure here, but the other comorbidities that are at the top of the list when it comes to COVID-19, we're talking about diabetes and high cholesterol and heart disease, renal disease, COPD, you know, so many of these things. If, if you implement the same steps that you're talking about to lower blood pressure, I would assume that you could also be checking off those boxes for those other conditions. Yay. So that, and again, I love ending on that note, which is, okay, that's the diet for hypertension. What's the diet for um, reducing my risk for cancer because my mom had breast cancer? Like, guess what? I mean, it's the same diet. It's just, it's kind of the best news all around. And even for people, um, a lot of conversation around, um, you know, meat processing plants and the ethical issues around having people go into those plants and work right now. Uh, it's like good news. You know, it's helping them too. If you don't eat meat and you try to 
you not support that industry um, feels pretty good. It's environmentally better. So there's a lot of check marks here. And I, I can't, and there's never, a, never one that is negative. There's no side effect that is negative to eating this way. And I can't even think of a disease that wouldn't benefit even with, we don't, maybe we don't have a lot of evidence around specific diseases and diet, but even then, because this diet is so closely linked to inflammation, which is linked to every disease, um, or just immunity boosting, which is linked to so many diseases, this diet is, is the answer. And it's, it's just the best news of, of all, I think, all those check marks. Well, that is the best news. But the second best news is you've put together this blog over on PCRM that talks about a lot of what it is that you and I are discussing now. You just kind of summarize it so very nicely in just a few paragraphs. But then right underneath of it, here's where the, the great news is, is there are eight recipes that are designed to lower your blood pressure and, you know, totally they are super deluxe tasty. I mean, anytime that you have a list of recipes, Susan, that begins with banana bread, I mean, <laughs> you know that you've got yourself something golden, you know? Yes, right. You can't go wrong with banana bread. And we're all baking right now anyway. Even people who don't, I can't cook, but I'm baking. I have like a bag of precious flour in my refrigerator, which I guess is kind of hard to get these days. And yeah, <laughs> Go bake yourself some banana bread. It's healthy. It's got that potassium we talked about, the fiber. Um, yeah. I mean, check them out yeah. for sure. And the other thing on there, we've got banana ice cream. Could not be any more simple. Just freeze a banana and put it in the blender. I mean, that that's yes. your base, and you can kind of add whatever flavor that you want beyond that. So that's in there. Uh, the other thing, you've got a kale and grains bowl in there that's super tasty. Uh, yams and bok choy. Zippy yams and bok choy if you're not an just Asian yams. fan. Zippy yams. Zippy yams, right. Which, ironically, you're using more than zero yams. So is it really a zippy yam? I mean, you have to have at least one yam to make this dish. (laughs) I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Uh, It's Friday as we're recording this. You must forgive me. And then uh, tomato soup. I mean, it's just an old standard. So many good things on here. Kale smoothie, breakfast potatoes. You really pulled together this incredible, uh, you know, resource of eight recipes to get you going right there. I love this so much. Yeah, and they do. They keep in mind, they keep in mind all those tips we went through for lowering blood pressure, like high potassium, folate. Um, I didn't mention it, but even whole grains are associated with lower blood pressure. So for all those carb phobics out there, whole grains are actually really good for your blood pressure. So get those in too. Yes, but not all carbs are created equally. I mean, that that should be just a whole other podcast, and that should be the title, and we talk about things day in and day out. Like, you can't compare Fruit Loops to brown rice or lentils, you know? Both of them are carbs, but they are not the same thing even remotely. Right. I know. I feel bad for carbs. They've just gotten... They they hang around with guys like Fruit Loop, and they get this bad reputation, (laughs) but the truth is carbs are really healthy Fiber is carb, is a carbohydrate, so you want as much of that as possible. All right. Well, here you go. So let's let's show a little love to carbs. Head over to uh, PCRM.org and look for the uh, eight recipes to fight hypertension blog. We're also going to link off to that in the episode notes here for this particular show. And also, as long as we're just plugging things away here, uh, at the bottom of that page, you can also uh, get your hands on a free copy of the Vegan at Home Cookbook. I know that you guys put together a ton of other great recipes there as well. Super timely right now, especially as everybody uh, is spending so much time still at home. Absolutely. Thank you, Chuck. Thanks for promoting great health. 
that's what I'm here for. That's you know, you, you guys introduced me to great health. So this is just paying it forward. So Susan Levin, thank you so very much for your time today. Greatly appreciate it. We've put a link to Susan's blog and those delicious recipes right in the episode notes. And as a bonus, we've also dropped in some links to the Physicians Committee's high blood pressure resources there. And those pages, man, they have a bunch of studies on diet and hypertension. It's like a prescription for lowering your blood pressure. Got all kinds of things in there like more foods to avoid, more foods to choose, all kinds of amazing tips in there. So go ahead and give that a click. But right now, let's go ahead and turn the page. We are about to open up the doctor's mailbag. And this week, we are inviting Dr. Jim Loomis on the show to get you some answers. Now, Dr. Loomis is a former team physician for teams in both the National Football League and in Major League Baseball. He also was featured in the movie The Game Changers. So there's going to be a lot of Q&A in here that is tailored to athletes, but he's also ready to talk about everything else health-related because he just so happens to be the director of the Barnard Medical Center as well. The man wears many hats. So tons of questions are coming his way, like one from David who wanted to know how can he replace oil in sautés? And Elk was wondering why she had high triglycerides while eating a high-carb, low-fat vegan diet. And Anu wanted to know about almonds and diabetes. So we got a lot to get into. Lots of questions here. So let's open up the doctor's mailbag right about now. Dr. Loomis, this first question comes to us from your colleague and mine, Lee Crosby. She wants to know kindly whether you could share your recipe for beet hummus. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I love hummus. Uh, hummus is a great, is, is incredibly easy to make. Um, and especially if you make it without the oil, um, incredibly healthy. Um, and so my beet hummus, and beets are expensive are important, uh, interestingly enough. So one, one of the effects beets have is it activates nitric oxide and nitric oxide actually improves endothelial function. And endothelium is the inner lining of the heart uh, of the blood vessel that controls the blood vessel constricting and, and, and um, dilating uh, appropriately. And obviously when you're exercising, you want, you want as much blood flow as you can to your muscles uh, um, to provide that extra oxygen you need to perform. And it's been shown that, uh, that beets actually provide a performance advantage um, um, and endurance, especially in endurance athletes, um, probably because of this activation of nitric oxide. So I, I love beets and I try to put beets in a lot of stuff, including hummus. So my basic beet hummus recipe is I take a couple cans of chickpeas. I typically will drain one and leave the liquid in the other and, um, and, and, and combine those in a high speed blender I put in some, um, I like to use roasted garlic because it's a little bit, uh, it makes it a little bit sweeter, but you could just use regular couple cloves of garlic, um, a little lemon juice, a couple tablespoons of tahini, and um, a couple of roast beets. Um, I put a little cumin in, um, maybe a teaspoon or so, and hit the blender, or hit the blend button, and next thing you know, you've got this beautifully colored, healthy beet hummus. 
Um, that recipe, you can, you know, if you leave the hummus out, I mean, leave the beets out, um, um, you know, you've got regular hummus. Sometimes for that, I'll add a little smoked paprika. Uh, but you could substitute sweet potatoes or if it's a holiday season, you could put pumpkin in there and add a little cinnamon and a, a little bit of um, uh, cayenne pepper. So so really, um, um, hummus is in- incredibly adaptable. And if you understand the basic recipe, which is just the the lemon juice, garlic, tahini and chickpeas is the basic recipe. Um, you can riff off that in many different ways. I, I sometimes I'll do one can of black beans and one can of hummus and add some cilantro, maybe half an avocado, some chili powder, and uh, um, make a black bean uh, hummus. So there's lots and lots of ways um, you, you can adapt that recipe to your taste and to the season, and, and uh, it's 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 really great. Well, on behalf of Lee and everybody watching, I would just like to say thank you very much. I've jotted all of that down and we'll be promptly heading down to the kitchen as soon as we finish the broadcast today. (laughs) Uh, First uh, question, the real question comes to us from David. He writes, I'm a college athlete who currently burns 1,500 calories a day. What recommendations do you have for how many grams of protein per kilogram I should be eating? So if you look at the current RDA for for protein, it's about 0.8 grams per kilogram. Now, granted, athletes do need a little bit more. And if you're an endurance athlete, it ranges in the 1.2 to kind of 1.5 range. If you're a strength train athlete, maybe 1.5 up to 2. But what, what's interesting about that is, is that, um, you know, if you are athletic, uh, and especially if you're engaged in, you know, training for an Ironman, ultra-endurance sports, or you're a strength-trained athlete, you're a bodybuilder, whatever, um, um, if you work that mat, so the natural macronutrient ratios of a plant-based diet are about 75% plant-based carbohydrates, unprocessed, whole food, um, about 15% protein, about 10% fat, somewhere, somewhere in that range. So if you, if you work the math backwards, uh, for someone who's say taking in 1800 calories a day and of average size, maybe, maybe 75, 80 kilos, that that brings you right, and you eat a plant-based diet, that brings you in right at 0.8, 0.9. But I can tell you, when I was training for, for Ironman, I wasn't eating 1,800, 2,000 calories. I might be eating three or 4,000 calories a day to, to, because I was burning so much. Well, when you double your calorie intake, what, what have you done for your protein intake? Well, you've doubled that as well. So So my advice is typically not to worry so much about protein and getting enough protein. It's about getting enough calories. And if you get enough calories from a whole food plant-based diet, you really don't need to worry about whether or not you're going to get enough protein or not. Monica from Facebook. Oh, this is a great question. Are there adverse effects on our bodies if we used to eat animal products, but went plant-based three years ago? Well, so you can't undo, in some ways, you know, the life you've led, the lifestyle you've had, up to a point when you adapt a healthier lifestyle. Um, a, some of that you can't undo, but, but a lot of it you can't. Uh, we know, for example, if you have, if you've developed insulin resistance, prediabetes, type two diabetes beforehand, and you transition to a plant-based diet, that typically will get better. And, and I've seen lots and lots and lots and lots of patients who have actually reversed their, their type two diabetes. There's evidence that, you know, you've developed some heart blockage because of an unhealthy lifestyle and you adapt a whole food plant-based diet along with exercise and stress management and don't smoke and, you know, don't drink too much, um, that you can actually reverse um, 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 uh, heart disease or at least keep it in check. 
So, so while there are some conditions you can't, you know, you, you, you may suffer from the lifestyle you led before. There's lots and lots of evidence that a plant-based diet in addition is part of a, of a healthy lifestyle. You can in fact unwind or undo uh, many of those uh, chronic conditions. RG on YouTube, I have type two diabetes and tried a plant-based diet, but had to stop because my fasting morning blood sugar was getting higher every day. Have you seen this in any of your patients? Well, I have, and and there there are um, so so a couple comments about that. Um, so so first of all, we know that that the root cause of type two diabetes is insulin resistance, and insulin resistance comes from increased fat, which gets deposited in our muscle and liver cells. And and um, so so to reverse to, to, to get the, the the reason that a plant based diet works so well. For type two diabetics, is that it actually because it's inherently low fat, high fiber. It has a low what we call glycemic load, which is the propensity of a given food to, to drive insulin levels up. Um, um, that's why it's such a powerful tool in treating, preventing, and reversing type two diabetes. Um, however, uh, because for many people, when they transition to a plant based diet, uh, th- their carbohydrate intake does go up uh, from maybe what they were eating before. Um, there is a lag time between the reversal of the insulin resistance and um, uh, in, in your blood sugar, right? So, so there's a period of time when you first start when you're still insulin resistant, but you may see a little bit of spike in your blood sugar because, uh, because of the increased carbohydrate. There's nothing wrong with that. You just got to stick with it because almost always that will get better. Um, as you start to reverse the insulin resistance, uh, those, your blood sugars will come down. Now, that being said, you do have to be careful because I think sometimes people, there is some confusion between, you know, when I talk about a whole food plant-based diet, I'm not necessarily talking about a vegan diet per se, although a plant-based diet is vegan, um, because you really have to be careful about the processed carbohydrates, processed sugars, and the, and the edible oils. And so oftentimes when people transition to a plant-based diet, um, you know, if you're eating a lot of highly processed vegan foods like Beyond Burger, for example, which is great for the animals and great for the environment, may not be much better for you. 30% fat, you know, from coconut oil, uh, fairly highly processed. So you do have to be uh, sure that you're, um, that, that you are eating a, a true whole food plant-based diet. I oftentimes in that situation will have patients use a, a, a food tracker, something like chronometer or my fitness pal and, and keep track of their, it's a little tedious, but I think it's an important exercise and have them keep track of their food intake over a 24 to 48 hour period to kind of average it out with, with just a couple goals in mind. Uh, you want to be sure your fiber intake is above 50 grams, closer to hundred if you can. And then you want your, the percent of your calories from fat, to be less than 15% and closer to 10. And if you meet those two criteria, um, then, then almost always the, the, the sugars will get better. This one comes to us from someone on YouTube. They write, do people who do intense, vigorous exercise need to consume small amounts of salt? Well, you know, we all need some salt. Uh, we, we, we need salt to survive. Uh, it's recommended for most people you maintain a salt intake you know, 2,000 grams, 2,000 milligrams, uh, somewhere near two grams. Uh, for people with, with high blood pressure or heart, heart problems, you might want to be less than that, 1,500 milligrams. There's no reason to, there, you know, some people argue that endurance athletes need more salt. They need to 
be taking salt tablets and things like that because of the, the sweat rates that, you know, losing electrolytes in your sweat. There's abs, our body, the body's an amazing thing. And as you start to get in better shape and exercise more and you become adapted to the heat, you'll actually uh, de- markedly decrease uh, the amount of salt loss in, in potassium and other electrolytes in your, in your sweat. Um, uh, your body will, will learn how to hold on to those, those electrolytes. So, um, um, there's, there's no reason, yes, you need some salt, but there's no reason to take extra salt, um, if you're an endurance athlete. It comes to us from Anu on YouTube. I'm pre-diabetic. Is it okay if I eat a handful of almonds to start each day? Well, as I, as I mentioned a minute ago, I think almonds are okay. I, no, so, well, let me, let me back up. So, um, in the initial phase, when I'm trying to help people reverse their insulin resistance, and prediabetes is a is a, is a, is is fundamentally caused by insulin resistance, I, I do have people uh, be very careful with their fat intake, and that includes nuts and avocados, and obviously the edible oils. Um, it typically takes anywhere from a few a week or a couple of weeks to a few months to to truly reverse the insulin resistance, and once that happens, um, then using nuts and avocado in moderation. There's certainly nothing wrong with that within the parameters I mentioned before. Uh, you just want to be sure that your fat intake uh, doesn't exceed about 15% of your, of your total calories. That, that's hard to do if you're eating a lot of nuts. Now, if you're eating a few, a few nuts, you know, you're using avocado like a, like a condiment, um, you know, where you might have a quarter of an avocado and a burrito or something like that. Um, um, then it's easy to stay within those parameters. Um, so I think nuts are fine. Um, um, I think you do have to be careful initially as you're trying to reverse the insulin resistance, but it needs to be in the context of an overall healthy diet. And, and it is easy. Uh, nuts are one of those things. If, if I go to Costco and buy a big you know, bag of almonds and put them on my desk, I could easily eat you know, a cup or two a day. So I have to, you know, I, I, you, have to, you do have to be careful with, with nuts. Oh man, tell me about um, it. Growing up in Virginia and that just being the peanut capital of the U.S., I, I could blow through that two pound tub of peanuts, no problem. <laughs> All right. Um, Stacy on YouTube, years ago, I learned that only professional athletes need to focus on higher protein needs. Is excess protein really necessary to gain muscle if one is just a novice weightlifter? Well, first of all, um, within the parameters I outlined earlier, uh, nobody needs excess protein. Um, and there's lots of studies uh, around that. That there's no there's no strength advantage um, of consuming too much protein. Um, you know, unlike protein, you know, if we if we take in extra carbohydrate, uh, we we can store that. We store it initially as glycogen in our muscle and liver cells, which we use for fuel. Anything left over, we can convert to fat to store for future use. Fat we can store for future use, but protein we can't. Um, and so once we have used up, we've used, met our protein needs, the needs that we have to build muscle or repair tissue or kind of day-to-day um, uh, needs, whatever's left over after that actually gets converted to, to um, a nitrogen and excreted in, in our urine. And in fact, there are many adverse health consequences of excess protein intake, uh, increased risk for cancer, increased risk for diabetes. Um, um, increased risk for kidney disease. So, so um, within the parameters I outlined earlier, which is about 1.2 to 1.5 grams per kilogram for an endurance athlete and 
about 1.5 to maybe 2 for a strength train athlete. There's absolutely no reason to take protein, um, any more protein than that. Interestingly enough, it's also been shown that, that plant-based proteins uh, seem to be much healthier and could carry much less chronic disease risk from overconsumption than animal-based proteins. And it may have to do with the methylation of some of the amino acids. That's a, a sulfur moiety, the sulfur, they're sulfated, which uh, t- tend to um, have much greater, carry a much greater risk for chronic uh, health, health uh, outcomes. Looks like your hummus is a hit. Tony here on YouTube has a follow-up. Uh, how can you replace tahini in hummus? Well, um, the, the, I mean, t- for those of you who don't, aren't familiar with tahini, tahini is, is just ground up sesame seeds, right? And, and there is a fair amount of oil. But again, within the constraints of, uh, within the constraints, if, if, if you put, you know, a tablespoon of hummus in, in a huge batch of a, a tablespoon of tahini and a huge batch of, of hummus, the amount of fat you're getting from each um, serving is, is, is actually quite low. And again, that's why I sometimes will have people track uh, as they're kind of getting used to redesigning and understanding the role that fat plays and how much fat they're actually taking in uh, using something like MyFitnessPal or Chronometer to kind of track that. I like Chronometer because it actually has a very robust um, um, recipe uh, function. So you could put in the recipe for hummus. It'll calculate exactly how much fat is in there. And then you can um, 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 figure out what, how much you can eat on a given day in, in the context of the rest of your diet to keep that fat intake below 15%. All right, time for just a couple more questions. So if you have one, go ahead and post it in the comment section now. This next one comes to us from Melissa on YouTube. She writes that she has elevated lipoprotein A. She says, I eat a whole food plant-based diet and never eat oil, avocado, or nuts. Is tofu, edamame, and soy milk acceptable? I eat at least one of these a day. Um, yeah, so lipoprotein A um, is is an independent risk factor for heart disease. Um, elevated lipoprotein A is mainly driven by genetics. Um, and um, so people who have a high lipoprotein A level, I pay much closer attention to their other cardiac risk factors when I'm, you know, um, their, their cholesterol and, and blood pressure and such as that. Um, there is some evidence that diet and exercise play a minor role in lipoprotein A, but not like with regular cholesterol. Um, and so um, um, there's absolutely nothing wrong with, with having um, soy-based products in your diet in the setting of a, of a high lipoprotein A. Um, obviously, you want to be sure you're, you know, you're not cooking your tofu in a bunch of oil because the tofu will really absorb that. You want to be careful with your fat, not because of the lipoprotein A though. It's just to manage the other risk factors to be sure that your cholesterol and, and such aren't adversely affected by uh, the way you eat and such as that. Uh, we actually did a deeper dive on that recently. I sat down with Dr. Joel Kahn on the exam room podcast over on Apple podcast recently, and he and I did a full half hour just on lipoprotein A. Fascinating. I had no idea what a popular concept uh, or popular topic lipoprotein A has become. It's really, you know, quite the uh, quite the underground following this lipoprotein A has. Um Back to the hummus, man. People just can't get enough of this hummus. Uh, this next one comes to us from David on YouTube. If edible oils are not generally idea f- ideal for the body, what can a substitute be for sauteing perhaps onions and garlic? Well, you don't need oil to saute onions and garlic. So uh, you can actually 
um, if you get your pan hot enough, you can just directly um, um, saute the, um, uh, you can directly saute the onions. Onions have a very high water content, so they'll actually release some fluids. Uh, my friend, Karen Dugan, who uh, has the Center for Plant-Based Living and the St. Louis Veg Girl, um, has some great videos on how to actually do oil-free saute. Um, and um, so if, and if you're not comfortable or if you're worried about the stuff sticking in the pan, um, then you can saute in a little water. Sometimes I'll use veggie broth uh, to saute, um, but you just don't need oil to saute or to cook with. Um, that, that's a fallacy. There's a lot of, there's, again, there's, there's, uh, you can find techniques uh, on the YouTube and the internet. And again, my friend Karen um, has some great videos on how to do that. Hey, final two questions. First one comes to us from Rachel on Facebook. Let's see if we can get her some help here. How can I get that much fiber? I'm not having any luck losing weight, but can only get in about 40 to 50 grams of fiber before I'm full. So um, that's the beauty. That's the that's one reason people lose. Uh, the reason people oftentimes will lose weight is because of the fiber that when we eat these whole unprocessed, these whole foods, they become calorically self-limiting because the fiber itself makes you feel full. So um, I sneak fiber, extra fiber into a lot of things. So in the morning, for example, if I'm going to have a bowl of, you know, steel cut oats, I might add a couple tablespoons of flaxseed. I might add a quarter cup of walnuts, um, you know, a, a cup of blueberries. Um, so now you've taken a, a food that, you know, inherently has seven, eight grams, six grams of fiber into something that has, 15, 20 grams of fiber. Uh, when, with the addition of the flax, you could use hemp seed, chia seed, um, something like that. The addition of the nuts, which are also very high in fiber. The addition of, um, um, of the blueberries, which are also very high in fiber. I mean, you have to remember the average American only gets about 15, 20 grams of fiber. And, you know, some people think that a lot of the chronic disease we see are fiber. It's because we have, we have fiber deficiency. Um, you know, using true whole grains, uh, Unprocessed is another great source of fiber. Um, snacking on high fiber foods throughout the day. Again, there's nothing wrong with having a few walnuts, um, you know, snacking on fruit. Um, um, dates have a fair amount of fiber. Uh, dried figs have fiber. So there's a lot of ways to kind of sneak fiber in um, by, by concentrating on high fiber snacks uh, throughout the day. A final question comes to us from Elk on YouTube. I have high triglycerides since I eat a high-carb, low-fat vegan diet. Should I worry about it, and what can I do to lower them? So triglycerides, um, very, very high triglycerides. I'm talking about five, 600. Uh, um, increase your risk for inflammation of the pancreas. But there is also an association between high triglycerides as an independent risk factor for heart disease um, and also... Um, High triglycerides in combination with um, um, uh, a low HDL in particular may be a, a sign of insulin resistance. Um, when I see high triglycerides in the setting of a, of a plant-based diet, again, it's almost always the, either the overconsumption of, of uh, you're not getting enough fiber or you're getting too, too many processed foods or you're not getting or, or, or you're eating too, many, too much fat, edible oils. So again, I will um, oftentimes have patients uh, do a dietary tracker like the chronometer again and look for those same parameters I talked about earlier. Um, less than, um, uh, greater than 50 grams of fiber, as close to 100 as you can get. Um, and also um, 
restricting your fat intake to no more than about 10, 15% of your calories. Alcohol can also raise uh, triglyceride levels. So if, if you drink alcohol and you have trouble with your triglycerides, maybe try abstaining for alcohol or really cutting back for women. We're talking maybe a drink a day on average. That doesn't mean seven drinks on, you know, on the weekend. For men, it's about uh, uh, two, one to two drinks a day. And again, that doesn't mean 14 drinks on the weekend. Um, on Saturday night, you also have to be careful how you define a drink. Um, it's about 14 grams of alcohol, which is the amount of alcohol in 12 ounces of 5% beer. That's about five ounces of wine in about an ounce, ounce and a half of, of hard liquor. Um, so you do have to be careful. You know, a pour of wine could easily be 10 ounces or, or two, two glasses of wine. So you have two glasses of wine. Now you're four. You know, you go and you get a pint of imperial stout, uh, you know, at the, at the, at the pub. Uh, all of a sudden, that's two or three drinks uh, just in that one pint. So that's the other thing that has been shown to um, 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 increase triglycerides. Exercise is also very important as well. That will help um, uh, control triglycerides. In about 30 minutes, 30, 45 minutes, most days, something to get your heart rate up. All right, Dr. Loomis, proving that it does not always have to be five o'clock somewhere. Uh, if we did not get to your question today, have no fear. Plenty of other opportunities are available to get your questions answered right here on the show because every day we answer at least one of them. And then once, sometimes twice a week, even we do these big, long, extended Q&A. So keep on posting those questions in the comment section. And I promise you, we will do our best to get you an answer on an upcoming episode. You can also tweet them to us at PCRM or at Chuck. Carol WLC. Just make sure that you use the hashtag exam room podcast. And Dr. Loomis, I can't let you go because something struck me that a lot of the questions that viewers were asking today, these are the same kinds of questions that you and your colleagues at the Barnard Medical Center can really help address. That's right. And, uh, and, and when you, to get down to the nitty gritty about techniques, you know, how do you increase fiber? How do you you know, lower triglyceride. Uh, we also have an amazing staff of dietitians uh, that, that are available. And you don't even have to be a patient uh, here at the Barnard Medical Center to, to avail yourself of, of, of their services. Um, if you live in um, Arizona, Colorado, District Columbia, Maryland, Missouri, New York, Virginia, uh, with a simple referral from your primary care doctor, uh, we can set you up to have a telehealth visit with one of our dietitians, and um, they can help guide you through the nitty gritty of fi fine tuning your diet to be sure that um, 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 you're eating as healthful as possible. I know uh, I've, I've talked about this a little bit on the show. My wife has sat down with Lee via telehealth and Lee Crosby and really just honed in on her diet. And I've said this as well as like she thought she was doing so good, but Lee was able to pinpoint some areas where she could do so much better. And she was so just excited by the prospect. Like she walked away all kinds of energized by this. And I'll take it a step further too, is uh, I was reading a medical journal recently and they, they spotlighted two case studies of type one diabetics who were really able during the pandemic to improve their health overall because of telemedicine specifically. I mean, they just brought those diabetes right under control. It's pretty powerful stuff. Call it the 21st century doctor's house call. That's exactly what it is. So to make your appointment, visit barnardmedical.org or call 202-527-7500. Again, 202-527-7500. You see that number right there on the screen. Available Arizona, Colorado, California, D.C., Maryland, Massachusetts, Missouri, New York, Virginia, and Kentucky. 
Kentucky now, thanks to Lee Crosby. So, uh, Dr. Loomis, I know you and everyone there are keeping busy. So thank you so very much for taking the time to join us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Chuck. Always a pleasure. Now that we've emptied the doctor's mailbag, it's time to fill it right back up. So send us your questions. The easiest way to do that is on Twitter and Instagram. On Twitter, it's at Chuck Carroll, WLC, and at PCRM. And then over on the gram, at Chuck Carroll, WLC, once again, and the Physicians Committee, just a little bit different. It's at Physicians Committee, spelled out this time. Just make sure that when you send us your questions, be sure to use the hashtag exam room podcast. And please also head over to Apple Podcast and wherever shows are available and hit the subscribe button there and leave a five-star rating. Because not only then will you begin to receive each new episode automatically, but you will also be helping to get this information to someone who needs it the most. Because the more subscriptions and the more good reviews we receive, the higher the show climbs in the podcast rankings. And the higher it climbs in the rankings, the easier it becomes for people to find us and learn all of this potentially life-saving information. And did you know that you can catch up on the exam room live every weekday, Monday through Friday at noon Eastern? That's over on the Physicians Committee's Facebook and YouTube pages. Brand new show, just about a month old. Dr. Barnard and I get on there live every single weekday and just bring all sorts of fun facts and information your way. And on Monday's show, as a matter of fact, he really sounded the alarm for meat plants and COVID-19. I'm talking about louder than that alarm has been sounded before. Because now, USDA inspectors are speaking out about the dangers in the slaughterhouses during the pandemic. Scores of them have gotten sick and several have even died. And we're not talking about the workers who have already been swept up in outbreaks at these plants. We're talking about the people who are tasked with keeping these plants safe. They are now falling ill. So this is a really amazing, extraordinary, and important conversation with Dr. Barnard. So check that out on Facebook and on YouTube. And don't forget to tell a friend. Join us each and every weekday, noon Eastern, right over there on Facebook and YouTube. But for right now, I'm just going to wrap things up for us. My thanks again to dietitian Susan Levin and Dr. Jim Loomis for joining us. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, stay safe and keep it plant-based. <laughs>